Acts 1, beginning with verse 1. Theophilus, the first scroll I wrote concerned everything Jesus did and taught from the beginning right up to the day when he was taken up into heaven. Before he was taken up, working in the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus instructed the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he showed them that he was alive with many convincing proofs. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days, speaking to them about God's kingdom. While they were eating together, Sylvia's not here to insert a comment, is she? No? Okay. While they were eating together, he ordered them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised. He said, this is what you have heard from me, John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Key verses for me. This is where it really kind of gets thick for today. As a result, those who gathered together asked Jesus, Lord, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel now? To Israel? Jesus replied, It isn't for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has set by his own authority. Rather, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is the word of God for the people of God from the people of God. Speak to God. Laura, I'm curious, you'll have to tell me at staff meeting how much we intersect on this. I did not necessarily intend to go with all and just steal your material, but yeah, so. The question, and this is the question I think that will shape how Acts begins to play out for the disciples. Is now the time to restore the kingdom of God? Is that what they ask? It's not. To Israel. Is now Jesus, he comes back, he spends 40 days with them talking about the kingdom of God, and their first question, at least as reported in Acts, is, is now the time to restore the kingdom to Israel? So the questions that kind of are, um, for me, at the heart of this sermon are, or is this, is that the right question? Are the disciples asking the right question? And, and maybe two, what do we do with Jesus' response? Is Jesus dodging the question like it kind of seems, or is he actually, in fact, answering it? And if he is, what do we do with that answer? Um, But to, I think, get at those questions, I think we have to understand what the ancient Hebrew audience would have understood. So I know, I know for many of you this is a review um, but it's a fun review, you've got to admit. And some of you, this is a review, but you've already forgotten it, so you need it. So let's begin in the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, or tohu vevohu. If you read in the ancient Hebrew, the language is the world was tohu vevohu, or tohu and bohu as we call it. Those are the Hebrew words for formless and void. So this early poem that talks about creation, it doesn't really give us a picture that God creates out of nothing. No, it gives us a picture that he creates out of this formless and void, this emptiness. And, and if you know the Hebrew language, tohu vevohu um, are represented by watery chaos. 
So the picture we're given of this creation is this watery chaos. So the picture of Genesis 1 and 2 is that what God creates is this movement from watery chaos to goodness. Chaos to goodness. Say that with me. Chaos to goodness. That's chapters 1 and 2. It's chaos into goodness. Chapters 3 through 11, we'll we'll talk about this in about two weeks. So let me give you the 30-second version. Chapters 3 through 11 is the de-evolution of the goodness back to chaos. God creates, it's good, but from there, goodness goes back to chaos. So chapter 12 of Genesis, we arrive at the story. God has chosen not to give up on creation, but he enters into it in a new way. He calls Abraham. Abraham, who was really old at that time, and his wife Sarah, and he says, you are going to have a kid. Imagine Ken and Sylvia showing up at church and saying, hey guys, we're going to have another Sarah. (laughs) What? It ain't going to happen. How old are you? 71. How old was Abraham? 90. 90. Oh, you got 20 years. So mark it, guys. On this date in 20 years, Ken Sr. and Sylvia, they're going to show up at church and they'll have an announcement. (laughs) Don't get on Marilyn's bad side. So the story is this, out of a people who are not a people, he's not, Abraham is not going to start a people, he has no children. Out of this lack of a people, God says, I am going to create a people. And this people is going to be like, unlike any other people group, because this people is not going to live for their own accumulation of assets and borders and all those other things. This people is going to live for the purpose of being a blessing to the whole world. The sense of of calling to be a blessing will come out of this people's relationship with Yahweh. But their fundamental fundamental, um, sense of identity is, is centered around this idea that we are called to bless the whole world. Fast forward. This people um, finds themselves in slavery. We won't recover the sermon from about three weeks ago. God gets them out of slavery, but now as they are finding themselves in the wilderness, they've got to form themselves as a people. So let me use this word intentionally. They've got to develop a certain kind of politic. Politics really is, is, if you want to know what it means, politics is about the formation of community. How do communities form themselves? That is politics. So God, in relationship with this people who are called to bless the whole world, has to form in them, inhabit in them, a certain kind of politic that they are going to embody in the world. That begins certainly with what we call the Ten Commandments. What actually says in the Hebrew is the Ten Words. Don't have any other gods before you. Um, Don't make any graven images. don't take a Sabbath, um, don't murder, don't uh, steal, uh, honor your father and mother. You, you get these 10 words that begin to form in them, <laughs> yeah, they begin to form in them a certain kind of politic in the world, but, but their politics doesn't stop there. And I know for, for many of us, we, we like to think, oh, well, let's just, Sean, don't talk about that in church, you just talk about spiritual stuff, and I, I, I get the heart behind that. I think it's because in our culture, politics has become such, a, um, such an edgy thing. It's a source of a lot of pain. It's a source of a lot of fighting. 
And so when we come to church, we, we don't want to experience the edginess and the fighting. So we say, no, we just got to talk about the spiritual stuff. But, but I'm telling you, you read the Old Testament, you read the New Testament, you leave the, the, read the life of Christ. You cannot help but see that the formation of whoever God is trying to form, be it in the Old Testament, or whoever Jesus is trying to form in the New Testament, is centered around this communal shared life, or, or other words, politics. So let's look at a few of some of the, the politics that this people begins to form as their communal life in relationship with God. Shay, hit the slide. So first, on immigrants. Um, Leviticus says this. The foreigners residing among you, they must be treated as native-born. Love them as yourself, for you are foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So, so as this early community called to bless the whole world begins to, begins to think about the ways God wants to order their shared life out of this covenant relationship with God, they get the deep sense that, that we are to treat immigrants in the same way we treat everyone else. They are us. Next slide, Shay. So let's think about... Next slide, Shay. Let's think about the poor and immigrants. Um, Deuteronomy says this. At the end of every three years... Bring all the tithes of that year's produce and store it in your towns so that the Levites, Levites you could translate pastors of that day, the pastors of the day who have no allotment or inheritance on their own. Essentially, they don't have a salary if you all don't pay your tithes. And all the pastors said. <laughs> Just kidding. That was, don't, please, that was, that was one of those random moments where I have things not in my notes. I probably shouldn't say it. Forgive me. Um, the foreigners and the fatherless and the widows who live in your towns may come to eat and be satisfied so that the Lord your God may bless you and all the work of your hands. So as they form this politics, they have this thing called tithing, and the tithing is supposed to go and to pay for the functioning of the worshiping community, but also it's to pay for the foreigners and the poor and the widows. So this is, begins to be how they form their communal life together in covenant relationship with God. Shay, next slide. The economy. And Shay, you'll have to go with me here. I think the next couple, as I get to the end of the slide, just go on to the next one. The Lord said to Moses at Mount Sinai, speak to the Israelites and say to them, when you enter the land I'm going to give you, the land itself, get this, the land, not, so not just you people observe the Sabbath, not just people have one day a week where you don't produce anything, you don't work, but the land itself, um, where am I, must observe a Sabbath to the Lord. For six years sow your fields, six years prune your vineyards and gather their crops, but in the seventh year the land is to have a Sabbath rest, a Sabbath to the Lord. Do not sow your fields or prune your vineyards, do not reap what grows of itself or harvest grapes of your unintended vines. The land is to have a year rest. Whatever the land yields during the Sabbath year will be food for you, for yourself, for your servants, the hired workers, the temporary residents who live among you, as well as for your livestock, your animals, and the land. Whatever the land produces, um, go for it. Eat it. So essentially every seven years, take a year off. Think about, think about if every seven years we just we shut down the Dow Jones Industrial. We're taking a year off, everyone. Amazon, once, once every seven years, they close down doors. What would happen to our economy? 
See, this begins to be how Israel begins to set up their politic out of the covenant relationship with God. Not only one day a week is going to be different than every other day, or the rest of the days of the week, but one year out of every seven is going, that is going to be how they think about economy. Now, there, there's another one, Shay, next slide. Because if you think that is crazy, it gets worse. At the end of every seven years, um, Seven years. This is the Jubilee. So every 49 years, essentially. Every 49 years, you must cancel debt. So your, your, your home, your student loans, your, all of us who have Honda Pilots in the room, every 49 years, it's gone. Uh, every creditor, get this, every creditor shall cancel any loan they have made to a fellow Israelite. They shall not require payment from anyone among their own people because the Lord's time for canceling debt has been proclaimed. Um, You get that. Let's go to the next slide. Yeah, yeah. If anyone is poor among you, so, so we're dealing with this in Seattle. We have, some, we have poverty as an issue. If anyone is poor among your fellow Israelites, in any of the towns of the land the Lord your God has given you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted towards them. Rather, be open-handed, freely lend whatever they need. Be careful not to harbor this wicked thought the seventh year, the year for canceling debts is near. So they, oh, this is every seven years. This isn't every four, this is every seven. Oh, great. My student loans would be gone. That's awesome. Okay. (laughs) Never mind, I won't make that comment. Um, They may appeal to the Lord against you, and you will be found guilty of sin, essentially, if you don't do this. Give generously to them and do so without a grudging heart. Then, because the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in everything, put your hand to it. There will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed towards your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in your land. Next slide. Foreign policy. So this comes out of uh, Deuteronomy. Uh, Many of you know, I think, one of the most pivotal moments in the Old Testament is 1 Samuel 8, where Israel um, goes to Samuel and they say, we want a king so that we can be everyone else. So it's almost like there was a sense of God was always supposed to be our king. We're never supposed to have a king. Well, if you read earlier in Exodus, there seems to be a conversation Israel was having. Because you know, by the way, the Old Testament wasn't just written with one worldview. Old Testament was put together with several world's views in conversation together. And so in Exodus, there is, in the midst of this conversation, this sense of, hey, when you're going to have a king, there's some things your king can't do. So here's some politics you need to practice. When, when you come to the land that the Lord your God has given you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers, uh, you shall set a king over you. You must not put a foreign over you who is not your brother. Only, get this, he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt into, in order to acquire many horses. Why should they not acquire horses? What do horses give you? Power. Think, essentially, if this was being written to us, you must not build many bombs. You must not build many tanks. That's essentially what this text is saying. Keep going, verse 17. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself. Why? Why? 
well, there's probably some reasons about sexual morality that are a part of this, but actually the number one reason you shouldn't acquire many wives in that context was because often kings acquired wives through treaties they made with other nations, and so essentially you're making a bunch of deals. And why do you make deals? You make deals so that your power can extend bigger and bigger, greater and greater. And so when they say don't acquire many wives, essentially they're saying it's not about acquiring more power. Um, let's go to the next one. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. Is that the last one, Shay? Okay, you can go to the next slide. So at the heart of the formation of this people, you have the Ten Commandments. You have the sense about take care of the foreigners and the immigrants and the poor, take a day off every week, every seven years, take a year off, cancel debts, every 49 years, just have a complete societal reset where if you've lost your land, you get it back, where the rich don't get richer and the poor get poor. Okay, catch me. If, you're, if you fall asleep, this is time to wake back up. This is how Israel begins to imagine how they are going to live out their politic of blessing the whole world out of covenant relationship with God. How does that go? It goes poorly. It goes poorly. It goes poorly, and that really begins with King David. I, I know we think of King David as only being the best and the brightest, and, and in many ways he is. In many ways he is the man after God's own heart. In many ways he is the epitome of when Israel was great and, and where we want to go to get back to. But in many ways, if you look at David's life, he begins to break many of the things. David would not have done well in the Me Too movement. David would not have done well at a, a disarmament agreement. Um, David would not have done well just as a dad. And so he begins to lead Israel out of this sense of being a covenant relation. In fact, one of the critiques, I think, within the Old Testament is that there seems to be this conversation about even the temple. Was the temple God's idea or was the temple David's idea? Kind of, but there seems to be, and, and I get why you say that, and there's a fair debate, but it's, if you read carefully, it's almost like God was really comfortable living in a tent. God was really comfortable, kind of like when you're camping, and you want to move on to the next spot. All right, pack up, let's go. And, and it's almost like the temple was kind of David's idea, because David wanted to have a permanent house. So, so David begins to lead. His son is, he has a lot of wisdom, but he doesn't enact it very well. Because he gets a lot of gold, a lot of wives, a lot of power. But to have a lot of gold and a lot of wives and a lot of power, you have to raise a lot of taxes. And tax day comes around every year, don't you know? And so as the Israelites get tired of this increasing taxes, they decide we're done with this, and they split north and the south. Eventually the north goes into, gets destroyed, and later, was it 587, I think? The southern kingdom gets taken over by Babylon. So if you read the prophets, there's this conversation that's happening about why. Why did we lose it all? And essentially, this is way too simple, but, but essentially you, it's because you didn't practice the politics of God. 
And because you didn't practice the politics of God, you failed to be a blessing to the whole world. And because you weren't a blessing to the whole world, you in fact were like everybody else. And when you became like, when you tried to play that game, the game that says we want to be like everyone else, you weren't good enough for it and you got trashed. But within the prophetic tradition, there also begins to be these voices that say, but God isn't done. In fact, God someday is going to breathe a new spirit and do a new thing. Fast forward to Jesus. Jesus comes out of this prophetic tradition. And he becomes, in a time, it was no longer Babylon, it was no longer Syria, it was no longer Egypt, it was now Rome. In a time where Rome was the king and Caesar was Lord, which is a very religious thing to say. Jesus comes on the scene proclaiming this thing called the kingdom of God. You want to know what the kingdom of God is? Go read the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the, blessed are the, blessed are. Turn the other cheek. If anybody wants your nice sweater that you're preaching in, give it to them. If anyone asks you to carry your groceries home a mile, carry it two miles. You've heard it said, uh, pray for your friends, but hate your enemy. And Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, no, 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 that's not the kingdom. The kingdom is you bless your enemies and pray for them. If you want to know what the kingdom of God looks like, read the Sermon on the Mount. Actually, read all the Gospels. He becomes pronouncing this thing called the kingdom of God, and it gets him killed. It gets him killed on a cross, which was a very political statement by Rome, because the politics of Rome and the politics of God, the politics of empire and the politics of God are not good bedfellows. So they kill him. Imagine the disciples who clearly had struggled with this idea. Certainly there are moments they're starting to get it. Their eyes are starting to open. But there's also moments where they're saying, Jesus, can I sit on the right and the left? Can I be your secretary of state? Can I be your secretary of defense? And Jesus is like, oy vey. But eventually he raises from the dead. And we're told in Acts that he begins to talk to them about the kingdom of God. But now in verse 6, they ask him, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Which is less a kingdom question and really more a nationalistic question. So the Iowa caucuses happened this week. Four years ago, it was awful to be a pastor. I remember that after the election, there was about a fourth of our congregation that it took about a month to come back. How much pain did we have? How much uh, tough conversations? At, at the end of the day, I think we're better having gone through it together. But as I've been thinking about this season that our country is beginning to enter into, it, it strikes me that part of the issue and part of the sense of why it gets so divisive and why it's going to be so divisive over the next year. And, and I, please, this is not from a passive-aggressive heart. I'm not trying to stir up one side versus the other. I, this is, yeah, it is what it is. It is my sense as a pastor That we, and by we, I mean we on the right and we on the left, in different ways, 
are asking the same question the disciples are asking. And the questions we're asking are less kingdom questions and more nationalistic questions. God, is now the time you're going to restore the kingdom to America? God, is now the time you're going to restore the kingdom to the Republican Party or the Democratic Party? And the problem is, is it's, it fails to be the kingdom of God. America first. A make America great again. And, I, and by the way, I think the other side has an issue too because if you think about the, all they're trying to do is just grow a big old empire too and have the I mean, I think both sides are guilty here. So please don't hear me coming out on one side. But Acts wants to remind us that for the people of God, the question isn't right or left. It's kingdom. Egypt in Exodus is not the kingdom. Babylon in 587 BC is not the kingdom. Rome in the 4th century is not the kingdom. England in the 19th century was not the kingdom. And neither is America in the 21st century. The kingdom of God does not look like our politics. The kingdom of God looks like Jesus. It looks like him healing the sick, feeding the poor, forgiving the sinner, raising the dead. Origen, an ancient father of the church, said, Jesus is the kingdom of God in person. One of my favorite pastors today says it this way. If, the, if, if what we have in front of us does not look like Jesus, it's not the kingdom of God. And if it's not the kingdom of God, we must never pledge our ultimate allegiance to it. It's Brian Zond. But yeah, he would say similar. And this Jesus, the one who embodies the kingdom, who calls his followers to wait for the Spirit so that we can witness to the kingdom, thanks Sermon on the Mount, that is who we are to embody our shared life around. If Jesus wanted a government to carry out God's mission in the world, he would have built it. He didn't. He built a church. The church is who we are. What we do and how we live flows out of who we are. May we never allow our civic duty, our patriotism, which is fair and real, or our political party to tell us who we are. Only Jesus, the head of the church, is worthy of that responsibility. As the, well, I can't quote this one in its fullness, but I'll give you a sense of it. One of, the, one of the theologians that we were told to read at NNU during our senior year, his name is Stanley Hauerwas. Have you ever, Laura, read him? I can't give you the full quote, but he says, Jesus is Lord and everything else is bull. But you see, this is where it gets tricky, if we're honest. This is where it gets tricky. And I'm going to use a couple examples here, and I'm going to use them because I think it helps us to feel the trickiness. So let's think about the economy questions that are having, happening in our politics right now. At the heart of the question feels to me, and this may be an oversimplification. If it is, ask Terry. He'll tell you. Ask Terry. At the heart of the question feels like this. Do we want capitalism or do we want socialism? Or democratic socialism? And if I was to bring Dominic up here on one side and Pastor Terry up here on another, we could have a great debate and it would be so much fun. It would be, it would be great. 
And, and I think the, the answer on both sides is, okay, Sean, you read all those nice verses, but that's pie in the sky. That's heaven someday. That's the kingdom. Let's live in the real world, the American economy that we all inhabit. So if it was my dad, that means capitalism is, it's, it's not perfect, but it's the best imperfect system. And Dominic would probably say, democratic socialism, not perfect, but it's the best imperfect system we have. And I want to say, I get that conversation it's just that Jesus said we're supposed to witness to the kingdom, not the imperfect system. Let's take, let's take, um, let's take how we respond to terrorism, which, which is Afghanistan. Longest war we've been in, I forget how long. As somebody who is an American, I get that. I get when they do something, we need to respond, peace through strength. That makes a lot of sense to me. It's an imperfect response, but in the imperfect world, it's the, probably the best imperfect response we have, right? Only, we're called to witness to the kingdom of God. And Jesus doesn't say, I want you to witness as best you can in an imperfect world. No, he says, I want you to be my witnesses to the world about the kingdom. So, as the body of Christ, it's not as simple as saying, yeah, it's an imperfect world, so we're going to do our best in an imperfect system. As the body of Christ, we have to wrestle. What do we do, Lord Spirit? Give us an imagination that doesn't just allow us to do the best in an imperfect world. Let us embody the kingdom, even in an imperfect world. This is a really good sermon, by the way. It's not going to be very popular, but it's a really good sermon. By the way, notice I haven't told you to be right or left. I get you will have to vote one way or the other based on your conscience. And I just want to tell you that your ultimate allegiance and identity is or ought not be right or left. It ought to be kingdom. And actually, let's say it this way. It ought to be witness to the kingdom. And maybe we should even say it this way, spoiler alert, for two weeks. It ought to be witness to the kingdom only after you've waited for the Spirit to infuse your life so you can actually live into it. So maybe the best advice we have is until you have been so filled with the Spirit that you can embody the kingdom of the world, don't post on Facebook. I gotta wind down. Um, I remember as a kid, I love the Portland Trailblazers. Uh, Clyde Drexler, Terry Porter, Jerome Kersey, Buck Williams, Kevin Duckworth, Danny Ainge. I remember uh, when I moved up here, though, about three or four years after I moved up here, after Teddy had beaten me enough that I started to try and play basketball so I could at least not get totally squashed, that if we play five games, I'd have to buy him five sodas and five bags of chips. Maybe I'd only have to buy him four sodas and four bags of chips. Um, one of my favorite players was Rashid Wallace. Great player. Loved his game. In fact, some of the moves, Shay and Jay, that I'm going to teach you this summer come from Rashid Wallace. Shay, I'm going to give you this post-up. And, oh, it's going to be great. Come straight from Rashid Wallace. Here's the problem. In several years, Rashid Wallace led the NBA in technical fouls. My grandma used to record those games and send them to me. I would watch them religiously. 
For those of you who knew me in my teenage years and my young adult years, you knew that when it came to sports um, or even board games, you probably would not describe me as a good loser. You know, you can make that joke now and it's kind of fair, but it's not fair compared to how I used to be. Why was I that way? Well, that's, yeah, that's good theology right there, board member. Um, I was that way because for four years of my impressioned life, my favorite player was the person who led the NBA in technical fouls. And so I saw somebody witnessing to a certain way of embodying the court, and I picked up that, oh, that's the way I can do it too. And so when I lost, Rashid's my man, that's my go-to. And that's probably an oversimplification, but it's not too much. The church is called to be the witnesses to the kingdom in the world. The song we sang earlier, what a powerful name it is. You have no rival. You have no equal. Now and forever, God, you reign. Love that song. But if we sing that song thinking those words are true, that says some things about the other things that don't reign. So over the next year, we're going to move from Iowa to New Hampshire next. Then is it what? Las Vegas? Nevada? California? Super Tuesday? We're... I don't know what you have to do. I've got to figure out what I've got to do. But may you find ways to be reminded that your allegiance is to this Jesus who calls us to a different kind of politics in the world. And the ultimate politic is a politic of love. And so even in a room with people that may drive you nuts on social media, we're called to love. Amen? Amen. That's why we come to a table. We're going to do it a little differently this morning. I'd invite those who are...